Hello and welcome to Newspeak, the New Culture Forum's weekly look at the news agenda, as you know by now. Um, I'm very pleased to be, uh, as usual, joined by our senior fellow, Rafe Hadermanku, royal commentator and historian. Um, our new semi-fixture, I think, uh, Amy Gallagher, who's the woman behind Stand Up to Woke. And a face that you must have seen uh, recently on NCF, I'm pleased to say, uh, Harrison Pitt, uh, who is the host of our programme, Deprogrammed, and also a, a senior editor at the New European Conservative. Um, before we talk about our topics this week, just one thing, uh, which is a notice about a forthcoming event, which you might already have heard about. But uh, on October the 7th, Saturday, October the 7th, we are going to be having a conference here in London on immigration. Uh, this is the most important topic, we believe, facing the country. And so this is a dedicated conference. Great names coming. You know, we've got so many professors. Uh, Professor Coleman from Oxford, uh, Matthew Goodwin, uh, Eric Kaufman, as well as uh, my good friend here, Rave speaking, and also uh, members from the smaller parties uh, Lawrence Fox from Reclaim, Ben Habib from Reform, and also William Clouston from the SDP, and more. Um, if you want to come, uh, the best thing to do is to get in touch with us uh, at contact at newcultureforum.org.uk. It will be below this video, um, the link to that, or indeed go on to Eventbrite, because uh, there you can get a, a ticket. So it's uh, Saturday 7th of October and I hope to hope to see you there. Now uh, we're going to talk about two particularly huge issues this week. They've both had strange kind of conduits into them uh, in the shape of one particular person. You might have seen an interview uh, which happened uh, within the past few days with Lord Macdonald uh, at the Foreign Office, chief civil servant there, uh, talking about how he told his colleagues that he'd voted for Remain uh, this opens up a whole argument about the nature of the civil service. So we're going to be discussing whether, in fact, it's fit for purpose, but also whether we should go the American route. And then, of course, we had a story of a young advisor, a researcher in the House of Commons, who has been arrested for being possibly a Chinese spy. But how far is the infiltration of China into all of our institutions? So we're going to be talking about that too. Um, Rafe, if I start with you, with Lord MacDonald, it seemed to me when I saw him being interviewed on this programme, I don't know whether you saw it, did you uh, wear it with um, Laura Kunzberg? And he made this point that uh, he told people that he assumed all his colleagues had voted Remain and they were in tears after the referendum and all of this. Um, but he seemed to be unaware of quite what he was revealing. He was almost trying to say that I, I'm such a sympathetic character. I wanted yeah. to give a morale, morale boost to my, to my you know, poor, set upon, and belaboured uh, civil servants. Forgetting, of course, that, that by saying this, he's essentially sticking one in the eye of all of those who actually voted for Brexit and all of those who actually assumed this was the case anyway. It didn't mm. really need to be said. And of course, it, you know, those of us who have been ca calling upon. Uh, people to reform the civil service simply have more more reason to do so now when well, we've had for the first time i think in history 
a senior civil servant admitting openly about the way that they voted. And that's such, a, that's such a, an attack on the whole principle of the civil service being impartial. It's also a slap in the face to those people who didn't vote for, uh, for, for Remain, who are civil servants as well, to know that the leader there is being so partisan on this issue. Um, you know, we used to have, you know, the, the Rolls-Royce of civil services mm. in the Foreign Office, and the, just 50, 60 years ago was the gold standard around the world. You know, we've lost the ability to negotiate trade deals now because of belonging to the European Union. And in every other way, it seems that what we have now, you know, is much more of a Ford Cortina than a, than a Rolls-Royce. And it's, of course, the, 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 the trust that the great British public have in the civil service has been eroded steadily when they've seen how people such mm. as members of civil servants working on the on immigration mm. have now resigned and gone over to work for Amnesty International, for example. There are so many cases mm. now where the clear uh, bias or the, the clear allegiances of people who are claiming to represent the entire body of the country are actually much more partial. Also, there was this case, wasn't there, of Sue Gray, uh, who basically... Uh, went from or became famous in a way for censoring Boris Johnson and is now sort of gone to the Labour Party but she sort of said this thing was it uh, you had your my back when I needed it so I will have <coughs> yours it's extraordinary isn't it Amy mm. yeah I mean this idea of neutrality in the civil service it's almost like it's just a polite fiction now yeah. that they just it's performative um, and it was interesting with um, Simon McDonald that he's the point he was making to the, his colleagues was the importance of being neutral, uh, being neutral, and then in the same breath was revealing who he voted for, and then therefore breaching neutrality in a sense. So yeah. it's, it's kind of I think that just shows you that it's something that they do on a wink and a nod. Yes, we're all we're all neutral here, but actually, of course, we all voted Remain. Do you, do you ever think they were neutral? No, I think I think the obstructive nature of the civil service has always been known. I mean, it's the sort of central joke of most political satire, isn't it? If you mm. look at Yes Minister and the thick of it, yeah. it's always the sort of jostle of power between the MPs and the civil service. But I think what's different now is that it's, you know, in line with all what's, you know, the, the long march through the institutions and what's happening to other professions and other... Um, institutions is that the civil service is so captured by a, a liberal elite, you know, that, that it maybe necessarily wasn't before, that it's just, it's more yes. openly political, more, you know, there's not even the pretense of neutrality anymore. Yeah. Like this, this, you know, like as you said, this man didn't even notice that he was revealing that, um, you know, neutrality's gone out the window. Actually, what was interesting is that uh, uh, Laura Kunzberg the BBC. Mm. I think obviously thought he was amongst friends there too, mm. but she um, she looked quite startled, didn't yeah. she? By Harrison, what do you? I mean, one thing that's come up as a result of this. Some, there's a great article by Patrick O'Flynn actually as well uh, about this. He's more or less saying, forget the whole idea of neutrality. <coughs> we should be like the Americans. What what do you think? And what what is the American system actually? Well, I won't <clears throat> I won't uh, claim to understand the intricacies of the American system as well as Patrick clearly does if he's recommending it as a model. One thing I will say is that there's, a lot of, there's been a lot of talk on the right in the last few decades over whether or not it is possible for institutions to be neutral at all. Like, to what extent has neutrality always been a bit of a fig leaf? To what extent is there always a, a, a driving moral and political force to any kind of institution which sets itself up for a purpose? And I, think, I, think that, um, I don't think that all, all of that criticism is completely unwarranted. But one thing that I will say is that Rafe is right. We did used to be the envy of the world as a civil service. I mean, it, 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 I mean, you would have kings of Iraq inviting, um, you know, uh, British government yeah. on their own dysfunctional kingdom precisely because the British administration was thought to be 
le less corruptible than native Iraqi. And the, the, the Egyptians did the same thing. Rafal, Rafal know about uh, that sort of late 19th century phase of the British Empire better than, better than I will. Um, but that, that's not true anymore. The problem is that if an institution is going to be politic, it's political neutrality that matters. If an institution is going to be politically neutral, it has to be loyal to something else. So yeah. what you need to have is a, is a strong sense that the process, the, the conventions, the norms, we're not neutral to them. We believe in those very strongly. Yeah. The loyalty to those um, sort of national norms needs, needs to be higher, uh, needs to rank higher in the minds of the people in the civil service than their own sort of political baggage. And, and that's what we've lost, I think. I think. I think we've lost the sense that, of course, everyone has political opinions. And of course, people, the civil servants are going to have that too. But there needs to be that trump card of, no, no, the national interest dictates that you are going to be politically neutral because you have, you have a higher duty. You have, you have a duty to, um, to the nation. Well, you the, have a duty to the crown, actually. To the crown. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's always been an inherent bias. But in the past, the bias was small c conservative. Mm. And certainly in the, in the 1970s, the Labour government was sort of thinking, well, yeah. we're being stymied by a small c conservative uh, administration. And of course, I think there was, there was a novel written about this in the 80s, actually, about what would happen if a radical Labour government came into being oh, um, and would be thwarted um, by um, this, you know, the, the Sir Humphreys <laughs> of this world who mm. still wanted to go off in, you know, in black tie to the opera. Um, <laughs> But I think the issue that Patrick O'Flynn raises is very, it's a very important one because when you do see that Brexit was stymied by, by, by bureaucracy, when you do see that people from, from, from the Department of Immigration have gone to Amnesty International, you do realise that the agendas of governments are being thwarted and blocked. And so Patrick's idea is to do what America does, where an incoming government brings in its own, its own admi administration, uh, which is far broader than what we have here. Now, I'm not necessarily in favour of that. I think Dominic Cummings had it all done correctly. And this is one of the ways in which I really lament the last five years, the lost opportunities that we had to initiate true reform and true change into this country, much of which Dominic Cummings himself saw. And he wanted to essentially ensure that the cabinet office stopped being so powerful and that policy advisors from Downing Street were injected into the cabinet office so that they could oversee the civil servants and ensure that policy was being implemented. The other problem with the civil service that we have is it is, uh, it is the, the epitome of an organization that rewards failure and mediocrity. Mm -hmm. The bright talents that go into the civil service don't thrive there because they run, they run counter to the system as it is. So, so many bright young things who have solutions and ideas and think out of the box get discouraged and <coughs> turn away. And that leaves behind the people who succeed in the civil service are those who are looking about, about career progression, who are motivated about pursuing their own agenda and advancing mm. themselves. And so when you do get crises affecting the civil service or, or government policy, all the best young minds are out of there. Yeah. And there's no one really around who can address these issues. That's why we've seen the government go to the private sector, for example, yeah. in recent years. So there's radical reform that, that can be taken. And nobody gets fired. <laughs> no one ever gets mm. fired. You don't, they just moved along. And then you get things like permanent secretaries who are basically CEOs and policy advisors that they need to be that they need to be disbanded with. There are lots of meaningful reforms that can be taken without going down the American route. But, I don't, but what is so wrong with going down the American route? You know this idea, but basically, as Rolf just said, it is essentially where if you're a Tory government coming in, you know, you bring your uh, believers along with you to Im implement your policies, and. And then basically you're on contract for what, four years, five years in our case, 
Do you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, I think if you've been democratically elected, um, you know, and you should be able to then have a, you know, choose the team of people you want to enable to put through the policies that you've been voted for, yes. you know, to put through. So instead what happens is, you know, MPs get elected and then they spend the next two or three years, you know, in a tussle with the civil service who mm. are, as you say, you know, there for life in the way that MPs aren't. They've yeah. got a job that, that, you know, that you can't get rid of them. I mean, even the... Even the job title permanent secretary is, um, you know, no job, no job title to have the word permanent in it. It's, yes. it's a real cause for concern. Yes. So yeah, I'd be, I'd be quite happy. I for would. It. I'd absolutely yeah. would. I think it should be. They should be. It is worth mentioning as well that the Americans do also complain about their deep state. I mean, we have the blob. They have their deep state. Is that what they're talking about though? When oh, they talk? on the Republican side of things, they will talk about how the president's agenda is routinely stymied by exactly the same sorts of sorts of permanent functionaries who just sit there you know, uh, like swamp-like creatures in Washington who will obstruct the president's agenda, breathe against the president, this sort of thing. So I don't think that the American, so maybe the American model is attractive, but in, in, in practice it clearly breaks down. Otherwise you wouldn't have such extreme division in the country over the true allegiance of its own civil service, its deep state, its permanent functionaries who, in the same way that prime ministers for us come and go, but those permanent functionaries remain in place. That, 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 that also stymies, um, that also creates a, demo democratic, a democratic deficit in the United States. But you can affect meaningful change, and you can get rid of this idea of a, of a permanent block civil service mm. just by changing hiring practices. I mean, that's one of the great problems. I mean, the number of senior civil service positions mm. that are not actually advertised outside of the civil service has something like doubled in the last 10 years. Mm. You know, mm. they're, they're, they're supposed to be a policy whereby every vacancy in the civil service is advertised openly on the internet. In effect, that's not been happening because there have been vetoes that can be put in place by the civil service. Now, Steve Barclay, who's taken over from Dominic Cummings, has actually brought in some meaningful change, which requires uh, top senior service, uh, civil service appointments to come from outside. And that will bring in the fresh, the idea is hopefully that this will bring in the fresh thinking and the radical way of, 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 of looking at issues from a different angle that will hopefully bring in the sort of reform that the civil service needs. I'm not, in, I'm not opposed to the American system, I just think that's a very whole-scale radical change to bring in at once, which will take away a lot of the institutional memory also that exists, which must be preserved within the civil service. But there are very, very big, meaningful reforms that can be taken. I, I, I'm afraid I think we need radical, I mean, you know, we need fast and radical change because nothing is being done is it nothing i mean everything i mean immigration you mentioned, immigration is the i would say the main one people just can't understand how everything is stymied everything uh, even like for example down to the rwanda plan that is actually a civil service union that's trying to stop that and they're quite openly talking aren't they about basically uh, we will not um uh, you know, enacted if it comes through. This is a bit like at the, well, you know, because you're in the health service. I, I think with the health service, for example, who are the former civil servants, aren't they? I mean, basically, they would not enact certain things, for example, to do with health tourism, you know, where people come in and just use worth of two billion or something to the NHS or a huge amount of money. But you can see how these doctors and nurses would probably say, uh, we will treat anyone who comes. Yeah, it's, it's not surprising to me that, the civil, that so many people in the civil service are so pro-EU. Because the EU the is not too dissimilar from the, the way the civil service is functioning. And that it has a kind of obstruction of democracy. And it, has a, it, it works in a kind of bureaucratic machine mm. that means that accountability and transparency are, 
are you know very difficult to achieve. Yeah. Um, so it, the, I, I think the members of the civil service that are all kind of pro EU, it's it's almost like it's it's fam probably feels familiar to them in mm. that that's what they are used to. Yes. And I think accountability is very important actually because at the moment whenever there's a, a government <coughs> scandal, quite often it's a civil service scandal, but actually it's always the minister that takes the rap for it. Mm. But I think it's about time we actually had the senior civil servants take the rap for it. I think that once you start getting accountability, people's jobs go on the line, then I think that is part of the way in which you can enact change. It's worth broadening the discussion as well, because it's not just the civil service that, <coughs> that acts as a drag on our democracy. I mean, it's called the blob generally. I think it was christened, given that name by Michael Gove at some point, not that he's done anything about it, despite mm. holding a various, various portfolios over, over the last 13 years. But he, but he, um, it, and it also underscores the incestuous nature of this blob that someone like Sue Gray can go from being a civil servant to mm, being, mm. you know, involved in the Labour Party or that someone who loses their job at the Home Office can start working in a, a refugee charity and trying to, mm. you know, uh, tr trying to ang angle for our borders to be even more open than they already are. Um, there are all sorts of these, these sort of nexus of public bodies and intermediary institutions yeah. which contain enough like, it's not a, a grand conspiracy necessarily, and it's still less the, the result of a single guiding intelligence, but mm. you do have enough sort of like-minded um, professionals and mandarins mm. moving between these different intermediary institutions and public bodies to c command a significant influence over the government of, of, of our country, and, and democracy suffers in that uh, uh, under those conditions, because people aren't actively participating in things anymore, there isn't that sense of accountability, those lines of accountability, and there isn't a, a, a strong sense of civic agency, which is the lifeblood of any democracy. People feel sort of shoved aside. They, people feel out of the picture. Mm. Interesting, actually, you talk about our institutions there, which brings us to the second one. Our institutions, you know, people moving, you know, from one to the other. Uh, apparently, you know, depending on your view. Those institutions have been hugely compromised lately and infiltrated by Chinese money, stroke, influence, stroke, people, actually. I mean, we've had this uh, instance of this young man who's uh, is denying it, it has to be said, but he was arrested back in March, actually, um, for uh, apparently possibly being a spy uh, for China. Um, he had access to certain ministers and indeed, you know, certain documents and classified information. Uh, he's denying it, as I said, but it's brought up the whole story um, and the whole issue of uh, Chinese influence in Britain. I still think, don't you think, actually, Amy, that majority of people aren't even aware this is an issue at the moment, would no, you say? No, I think even, even now, talking about it, you, you sort of hesitate because you're going to sound a bit conspiratorial, yes, even yes. though there is you know, wide evidence of, oh. of this happening. I mean, there was evidence of, uh, I think it was the London 48 Club, where it was supposed to foster, you know, relationships. London? For 48 Club. What's that? Oh, it was, it was set up in London. It was supposed to foster good relationships between London and China. But uh, there was a story out a, a while ago about how a lot of MPs were being paid off to not criticise China. And we see, I mean, everybody sort of says, why is China never criticised? You know, and there's, mm. there's, there's always a video every now and again of some MP that refuses to just talk about China. And it's very odd, and everyone's like, oh, what's that about? Yeah. So it's, it's, it sort of it sort of goes under the radar, I think, the, yes. the whole, you know, the influence of China. And because it's not to talked about, but that, that is the problem, because, you know, people, don't, people are scared to talk about it, and they're often, you know... Well, I think one of the great examples of that recently uh, was during COVID, where mm. no one talks about where this thing came from. 
I mean, it was extraordinary. Yeah. Any journalist you think worth their sort of salt would would have, would have asked, well, where, where did this come from, and was it a mistake or an accident? I mean, Harrison, the, you know, Amy said there about influence, but for many people, it is far more than that. I agree. I think that in many ways, <clears throat> uh, and this, this is something, you don't take my word from this, I mean, I, I think many of us know by now that Neil Ferguson, not the, the very good historian, but the the epidemiologist slash, I don't actually oh, think yeah. he is an epidemiologist, but the chap who the wrote the, the, the philanderer who wrote the Imperial College report, uh, which plunged us into lockdown. He, I think he even get, said in an, interview, in an interview in the Times that he didn't think that liberal democracies like Britain would be willing to go along with the authoritarian mm. model of mass sort of technology-enabled mm. mass control. Uh, and as soon as we saw Italy doing it, we realized that it was feasible. I think in many ways, the, 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 the Chinese, the, the very technocratic Chinese approach to politics, which is very happy to disregard people's rights. People's rights, it's not that they necessarily are, are um, you know, gung-ho about uh, violating people's rights, but they, they regard whether or not you as a citizen have rights, you as a citizen have rights, you as a citizen have rights. They regard these as fundamentally pragmatic, technocratic questions, not moral ones, mm -hmm. which means that there's no sense that, oh, well, of course, yes, it may work for us to shoot every dog in Shanghai, to pr maybe that will prevent COVID from spreading, but we won't do it because on moral grounds we won't do it. There's this sort of ruthless authoritarianism yeah, to the Chinese yeah. model. And, there's, and I, I get the sense that not only are the Chinese colonizing our institutions in a certain way, the CCP colonizing our institutions, in many ways they're having a very uh, transformative effect on the way that we think about politics in this country. Rafe, actually, could I ask you one specific thing I want to ask you, in this article I mentioned by Sherelle Jacobs in The Telegraph, um, she's, she says essentially that the Communist uh, Party of China has essentially, you know, replaced, been uh, replaced rather, Al-Qaeda al and Islamism as the main threat, the oh. main existential threat. Do you, think, do you go along with that? Absolutely. This is Cold War II that we are in and it's about time we woke up to it. And mm. it's, the, it's the, uh, the failure of our political elites to actually understand that we are facing this existential threat from China will be regarded as the greatest failure of leadership of the 21st century. And I'm quite serious when I say that. In the old days, we looked at this as being the difference between the Occidental and the Oriental mind. Today, we would say <coughs> between the democratic and the authoritarian mm -hmm. mind. Mm -hmm. And in the West, we still keep thinking. I mean, that's why we got into this mess. We allowed China into the WTO because Clinton and others thought, well, if we allow them into our club, they'll become just like us. Yeah. You know, if, and of course, what happened? No, because the, the Chinese learned from the Russians. The Russians tried democratic reform before economic reform, and they saw what happened then. So they were dead set on having economic reform without any institutional governmental reform. And what we, the, one of the downsides of democracy is short-termism. Mm. Every government that comes in thinks in terms of its own short-term yeah. re-election chances. Whereas, you know, the ancient civilizations of Asia think about centuries and they have medium and long-term plans. Mm. China's now on its 13th five-year plan, right? But they're actually thinking in terms of decades and, and quarters of a century. And those plans in, in, included, you know, capturing natural resources around the world, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, which mm. thankfully Italy has just gotten out of, but whereby China builds mm. infrastructure in countries and exerts its influence there. Intellectual prop China is the world's greatest steal of intellectual property. Most of the advances made in China aren't on the basis of, aren't on the backs of Chinese ingenuity, but simply of stealing ideas, particularly from America and British universities and, mm. and corporations. I mean, the FBI openly admits this, and in this country we're still 
too unwilling to accept the reality. And so you have the ridiculous scene of, of, of um, James Cleverly, the Foreign yeah. Secretary now, saying mm. it's not credible to try to unentangle ourselves from China, even though China's own policy, its five-year policy, is to become completely self-dependent, to have complete control of all of its industries. If they can do that, I don't see why we can't, yeah. particularly when we've seen what happens when a country like Germany becomes so beholden to Russia for energy. We are in the same position now by making ourselves beholden to China because of its influence, our dependency on it for supply, but also its involvement in our infrastructure, be it nuclear power to, to everything else. And you would think we would have learned from the Russian example that we have to start detackling, untangling ourselves from, from the Chinese tentacles. Apparently, though, isn't it right? I mean, if one's going to try and be look on the bright side, <laughs> apparently China is actually entering a recession or things are getting quite bad there? I won't, I won't, again, I won't claim to have intimate knowledge of exactly what's going <coughs> on. I don't worry, none of us have expert knowledge, really. <laughs> intimate knowledge of what's going on on the ground in China, but I do think that they are facing a, 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 a population bomb of yeah. sorts, or not um, sort of a, a fertility crisis of sorts. We're, we're, it, would be, it would be better if we weren't also facing one of a, of a smaller proportion, mm. but they're, they're, what, they're certainly what facing what, that. From what, how are we facing Oh, that? well, I mean, I think, well, I don't know what our fertility rate is at the moment, but it, it, the optimal fertility rate for a country is, is 2.1. You need to have a fertility rate of 2.1. Every woman needs, on average, to be having 2.1 children so to, keep, to keep the population above replacement rate. And we don't have that at the moment. In fact, the only Western country in the world which does have that is Israel. But China, um, China introduced the, the one child, child policy. policy and also, um, you know, encouraged the, the uh, male children, i.e. aborting female yeah. children. Um, and now they've got a bit of a crisis and that there's too many males. So there's not enough w yeah. women to have children. Yes. Um, and that's partly one of the reasons they had a kind of credit credit crisis a couple of years ago, because Men are men are trying to buy up property in order to get in order yeah. to get wives. There's all sorts of cultural dynamics at play. Um, I think this is one thing actually you alluded to actually, which it's so important. I think, uh, and you did as well actually. This this idea that essentially the way they look at the world, you know, Democrat versus authoritarian, but basically what that comes down to is security trumping freedom. Right, that security is everything. Now, don't you see the? Don't you see how we're sort of going that way? I mean, essentially, we're sort of giving up. That's what I was saying earlier when I when I was talking about how freedom doesn't carry any moral force anymore. It's not yeah. like you, something you've said before. People used to say in this country, just as a, well, this this is our culture. It's a free country. Yeah. There just used to be this culture that we live in a free country, yeah. and of course, we're not going to cease to be a free country, even if it could be proved that it would, it would benefit us materially, even if it could be proved that it would afford us greater security, on purely moral grounds and out of loyalty to what we have, we're, yeah. we're going to remain a free country. We've lost that sense, I think. Which is why, and, and into that void moves a sort of ruthless technocratic mm -hmm. pragmatism, which, as I say, isn't necessarily thrilled at the prospect of violating your freedom, but will certainly do so if it's considered necessary for the security of, 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 of the nation. And, and we're already there, and our, our elites already think in this way, I believe. Do you think, I mean, you know, the, I, I don't like, when people talk about, uh, you know, elites or politicians being naive, I tend to sort of think they're letting them off a bit lightly. But do you think that Cameron and um, the Chancellor, Osborne. You know, or, do you think that they were naive? Because they were the great ones, they were, we're going to bring them in. They, we're going Osborne, to Osborne was wholly naive and was quite remarkable, of course. The, the Americans have cottoned on to all of this. 
and we were so gung-ho to join America as its greatest ally when it came to the war on terror. We've been mm. so keen to join to join with 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 America as the as the great uh, supporter of Ukraine against Russia, but now we're dealing with the the greatest threat, a far bigger threat than a bunch of chaps in, in you know in, in dresses and in caves. <laughs> we're talking about the super economic power of the world. Yeah getting itself involved in all of our assets, becoming so fundamentally mm. important to the survival of our key industries that we will be too scared in the future to confront it. We have the opportunity now. America is calling for us to take a, a stronger line on this. And now we decide to, to choose a different path when actually we're facing a far more serious issue with China mm. than we ever did from Russia or from places like Al-Qaeda. Yes. I, I think that people like David Cameron and George Osborne were very much... Uh, very much signed up in, in, in 2010 to the, to the Bill Clinton idea that the more you accommodate, the more you foster relations with these people, the more they will become like us. I think that was the, that was the, the, the reigning fallacy that was it's going on. It's actually a kind of Blairite doctrine, isn't it? Of course, it? yes. So, well, know, it's, it's exactly... One of know. the principles of like neoconservatism in a, in a certain kind of way, that you, you, our values are fundamentally universal values, and therefore the more we show good faith, the more people will realize the truth of those values and they will become like us and you won't have to do anything like actually engage in difficult diplomacy or do anything think, like that. Do you think that uh, the idea, just to be fanciful for a minute, well, actually not that fanciful maybe, but you know, the idea that this social credit system is on its way here. I mean, do you think that that's case yeah i think i think a lot of people are thinking that but you hesitate to say it as i said because it sounds so dystopian but there's no i mean like the, the lockdown of course we copied china and it's you yeah. know our approach but there's also going cashless you know that every mm. all our transactions will be you know recorded and then this this move towards cars becoming electric and then the, you know pay per hour or, or whatever it is mm. that everything will be we will become a surveillance state you know that mm. does feel like that is the direction we're going in um, and I think it's, you know, people are saying, oh, hang on, this is, this is not what this country is supposed to be like. This well, and we know full well from Nigel Farage's experience mm. now, what that's revealed that people mm. trying to open bank accounts are having their social media looked into. Mm. I think we're going very fastly on the track towards a, a social credit system, you know, mm. where you're going to, you go and try to get petrol from a petrol pump, and if you haven't paid your mortgage payment, your card will be declined. I mean, that's all part and parcel of the way that we're going to be going. And these are serious proposals that are being put forward. I know, it's, it's extremely, uh, we should have really seen the writing on the wall, or at least, uh, you know, the first sign uh, during COVID, where, uh, who is it said, um, but basically, we didn't. They didn't think that we would be able to get away with it. Oh, Neil Ferguson. Yes, Neil, Neil Ferguson. Ferguson. Just yeah. right. You said, and then he said, but we realised that we could. Yes. Mm. Terrible. Anyway, on that note, uh, just before we actually uh, finish, um, remember last week we were talking about the last night of the proms. I don't know whether you saw it. I mean, I can't watch it anymore. You know, with all those EU flags and everything. Uh, but I just thought I want to ask each person just a few things that they no longer do. Uh, when I say that, I mean like in the past few years, say they take the last three or four years. I no longer, for example, watch the last night of the proms. I don't watch any period drama, really, certainly BBC period drama. And I don't read any new novels, really, of any note. Because um, this is something I'd love you to, you know, comment about. What, what don't you do anymore? What's become such a drag? Because you know what it's going to be. Ladies first. Okay. Uh, well, I used to buy Vogue magazine. Um, <laughs> Vogue, Vogue, Vogue magazine. Vogue. Oh. Yeah, it used to be all yeah. about beauty and elegance and non-political. Yeah. And in the last several years, it became very, I think after Trump, it became very political. And 
hyper me too feminism and it wasn't that long ago they had a, a disabled man on the cover dressed as a woman a, a trans man um, and yeah, that's a far cry from Claudia Schiffer. So yeah, it is. <laughs> but didn't they also have uh, Miriam Margulies on? Oh yes, so. exactly. I mean, uh, that is kind of an affront to beauty, isn't it? Really? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. It's, it's not doing, like most things, it's not doing what it says on the tin or what it used to do. Vogue. Vogue, so yeah. I used to read The Economist. Uh, <gasps> I, <laughs> I don't bother anymore with that. Um, and, and an important one, which I expect a lot of people will identify with, actually. I used to care about the England football team. Oh. I used to yeah. tune in, I used to want them to win, and I still do get excited every four years, yeah. but I don't, I'm not anywhere near as bothered when they drop out, because I just can't stand all the, 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 the political guff that accompanies what should be you know, a wonderful sporting spectacle. Folk football. I don't go to as many uh, exhibitions in museums mm. and galleries as I used to, but I would say I'm, just, I'm more selective now than I would have been. If I'm going to see a film or a play, I have to look and see do they have colourblind casting, I've got to see who wrote this, I have to do so much more mm. work yeah, <laughs> researching yeah. something before I go to see it, you know, and that's my change in lifestyle. Well, I mean, that shows how varied we are as people, you know, I mean, proms, vogue, football and exhibitions, you know, we don't see any of them anymore. Um, anyway, do tell us what yours are as well. Um, Ray, thank you as, as ever. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Harrison. Thank you. And uh, we shall see you next time on Newsweek. Thank you. Bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as three pounds per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.